You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. And so please open your Bibles with me now to John chapter 20, verse 19 to 21. And uh, while you get there, I want to provide some context on what we're looking at here. In just the preceding verses, we read that Simon Peter and John received word from Mary Magdalene that the body of their Lord is no longer in the tomb. So in panic, they run to the tomb and they find it empty. But we're told that they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the readers of John's gospel, for them, the climax continues to build. How will the risen Christ appear to his beloved disciples? And how will the disciples react and respond when they see their risen Lord? The passage of scripture we're looking at this evening is about Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance to the band of his 12 disciples minus Judas and Thomas. And before we read it together, let's pray for the Holy Spirit's gracious assistance. Lord, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Convict us, Lord. Refresh us, wake us up from our slumber, and cause us to see more of Christ and your glory Give us holy affections, holy convictions, and holy ambitions for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 20, 19 to 23, hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, Their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. When I was in high school, I used to take the subway on my commute to school. And one day, as I was standing on the platform of York Mills Station, waiting to go northbound, I saw a bright green $20 bill on the subway tracks. And so I peeked into the tunnel and saw that there was no train coming. And so as a stupid teenager, I jumped onto the tracks, I picked up the $20 bill and put it in my pocket. But just as I turned around, I saw a flash of light and bam! I got hit by a train coming at full speed. Now you're probably wondering, How in the world am I still alive 
and standing before you right now. You would expect that if a person gets hit by a train at full speed, they would be dead or at least severely impaired. Well, you would not be wrong to expect that because if I really got hit by the train and survived, I'd look dramatically different. It's true that I became $20 richer that day and thankfully I made it back up to the platform before the train came. But what if I didn't? The impact of that 200-ton steel would have crushed me and my life would be changed forever. It would be impossible for me to collide with a force that powerful and not be changed. And I ask you, what is more powerful, a train or the Almighty God? Many of you here profess to be Christian. Many of you here profess and claim that you personally know the living God. But does your life look any different than before? Does your life look dramatically different than your unbelieving friends. Because I tell you, it would be impossible for you to collide with the powerful force of the risen Christ and not be changed. And this is what we see in our passage today. When the risen Christ appears to the band of his disciples, what we observe are dramatic changes in their lives. There is a radical change in their demeanor and disposition. There is a radical change in their life purpose and mission. In our text, we can find at least four radical changes that occur when a person truly encounters the risen Christ. Well, let's begin with the first one. When we encounter the risen Christ, we undergo a change from fear to joy. In verse 19, we read, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So why were they hiding? Why did they lock the doors for fear of the Jewish leaders? Well, they had seen with their own eyes how the Jewish leaders conspired against Jesus and had him arrested and then brutally crucified on the cross. And the disciples believed that they too were in danger of being arrested, imprisoned, and executed just like their rabbi. The disciples were overcome with fear. Can you imagine this scene with me? A group of grown men locking themselves up in a house, paranoid and afraid. But those poor disciples were in for a shock because as they look over their shoulders, suddenly they see a man that was supposed to be dead. Second half of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them. Many people wonder how Jesus got inside when the doors were locked. Well, maybe he walked through the doors, or maybe he walked through the walls. 
we can't be sure because John doesn't tell us. But if Jesus didn't have a problem busting out of the tomb, I'm sure he didn't have a problem busting into a house. And just in case people might think that he was some kind of ghost or a vision, John tells us in verse 20 that Jesus showed them his hands and sighed. The scars from his wounds verify that Jesus is in the flesh, that he was crucified and died and was buried and has come back to life. So the disciples see his scars, they confirm his identity, and we read in the second half of verse 20, what does it say? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is the first change that took place in the disciples upon encountering the risen Christ. At one time, they were overcome with fear, but now they were overcome with joy. Their fears were replaced with joy. And this joy was not just from the sheer excitement from reuniting with their master, because even after Jesus departs and then descends into heaven, they will continue to experience a peculiar joy, even in suffering, even in persecution, even in death. The disciples will go on to experience a permanent and irrevocable joy. In John chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus promised his disciples that though he will go away for a time, they will see him again and they will rejoice and no one will take away this joy. And when the risen Christ appears before them, it is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. The American Psychological Association suggests that in recent years, rampant anxiety has become a national mental health emergency. A study was conducted to identify which factors fueled people's anxieties the most. And they were able to produce a list of America's top 10 fears. The number one fear on that list was loved ones dying. The second on that list was loved ones becoming seriously ill. And the third on that list was mass shootings. And what's so interesting to me when I read this was that the top three fears of America are all related to death. Actually, six out of ten fears on that list are directly or indirectly related to death. Everyone has fears. Fear of abandonment, fear of judgment, fear of failure. But the greatest of fears that no one can escape is death. Every day that we live is a day closer to our demise and to the death of our loved ones. Even kings and brutes tremble on their deathbed as they count down to their last breath. Death is the great equalizer 
of the strong and weak, the rich and poor. The certainty of death for all reminds us that we are vulnerable and helpless creatures. But let it be proclaimed. Jesus Christ defeated death. And he gives eternal life to all who believe. Dear Christians, you and I have the solution to the greatest fear. What the world needs today more than anything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not more antidepressants or more therapy. Although those things can be very helpful, they do not address the fundamental issue of death. And to be more precise, death is not even our biggest issue. It's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem that humanity faces today is the wrath of God that our sins incur. The apostle tells us in Revelation 21 verse 8, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The proud and godless men say, I'm not afraid of death. I will live my life to the fullest and enjoy it while I can. But the word of God says that each person will be judged according to what they have done and for their unbelief. There will be a second death after the first. And the agony of this second death will last for eternity. God is just. He is holy. He is righteous. And like a good judge, he does not turn a blind eye to a crime, but he will punish all lawbreakers. If you live your life disregarding God and his law, if you live your life in willful disobedience to God, hell will be waiting for you at the end of your life. But here in our passage, twice the risen Christ says to his disciples, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. In verses 19 and 21. And when Jesus says, Peace be with you, it's not just a conventional greeting, but he is imparting real peace. The peace between a holy God and sinners that Jesus has made possible on the cross when he said, it is finished. He imparts the peace of divine reconciliation and new life to his disciples. And for those who are united to Christ by faith, the penalty of their sins is paid in full by Christ's sacrifice. And they receive all the benefits of the risen and ascended Christ. They shall join Him in glory with new resurrected bodies. And they become citizens of the kingdom of God, where there will be no more death, 
No more mourning or crying or pain. Our eternal joy is secured by Christ's victory over sin, over death, over all forces of evil. And this permanent joy that Jesus offers us transcends all earthly sorrows and sufferings and even our greatest of fears. You see, the only people that need not be afraid of death and hell are the redeemed. The funeral of the Christian is a celebration. That's why the disciples of Jesus will go on to fearlessly proclaim the good news of their risen Lord. As we read in the Acts of the Apostles, it does not matter if they will be rejected by men, thrown into prison, or fed to the lions, because the threat of death will not stop them from preaching the gospel. What a radical change from a group of men who are hiding in fear and locked up. Perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of God demonstrated to us in Christ dispels all our fears. Brothers and sisters, what is it that you fear the most today? And what fear is there that Christ has not overcome? There is no closed or locked doors that Christ cannot enter. The grace of God invades your life, invades your thoughts, invades your hurts, your pains, your traumas, your insecurities, your fears. And the Holy Spirit is producing in you the fruit of joy. And we have this promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's move on to our second point. When we encounter the risen Christ, we undergo a change from crisis to purpose. As the disciples watched their Lord humiliated and crucified on Good Friday, their hopes were crushed. They thought Jesus would build a great earthly empire, but he was dead, and now they were on the run. They locked themselves in a house. They were in despair. They were lost. They were in the crisis. But when they are met with the risen Christ on Easter Sunday, they are given new hope and purpose. Look with me to verse 21. It reads, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. These men in crisis who had no direction for their life and future were now being sent on a mission, on an adventure. Jesus gives them a grand and glorious purpose for their lives. A purpose bigger and more exciting and more important than they ever imagined. A life purpose worth living for and dying for. Missio Dei, the mission of God. 
Here we find John's version of the Great Commission. Jesus invites his disciples to participate in God's mission to the world. Just as Christ was sent into the world to help the needy, to free the oppressed, to care for the sick, to proclaim the gospel to all, they too are now being sent into the world to imitate Christ in his missionary work. Likewise, our Lord has commissioned his church through all ages to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. Dear brothers and sisters, God did not save you so that you can live an easy and comfortable life. God does not give you an education and talents so that you can have a great career and make a name for yourself. God does not give you money so that you can buy a big house and a nice car. If God has blessed you, he has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. You know, before I was a Christian, my life goal, my singular one life goal was to make a lot of money, retire my parents early, and travel the world. I was a God-hating, self-centered hedonist. But one day when I was smoking a cigarette on my way to class, a stranger from this campus ministry approached me and told me about Jesus. I was a very unlikely convert. I don't know what he was thinking approaching me. But through a series of more conversations, I was actually led to believe that Jesus Christ was truly God and that he died on the cross and that he actually rose again from the dead. And this completely changed my outlook on life. When I was an unbeliever, I was obsessed with making money. And now I was obsessed with making disciples. The prospect of becoming rich didn't excite me anymore. But God gave me a vision for the evangelization of the whole world. I became completely obsessed with this new ambition. I wanted to give my whole life for this cause. I wanted everyone in the world to know the grace of God and Jesus Christ that saved a wretch like me. But this new obsession led me to a season of doubt. Whether I had gone crazy or maybe I'm part of a cult. Because my Christian friends, who I thought were Christian at the time, they were baptized, they never swore, they went to church every Sunday, but they simply had no interest in evangelism and discipleship. They thought I was too radical when I thought I was just being a Christian. It was only years later I learned that they were never truly converted and they left the church. 
Brothers and sisters, I wish someone told me this when I was younger. A mark of a true child of God is a passion for their father's name to be hallowed and worshipped in all the earth. Maybe you have self-centered ambitions for your life. Maybe you have no ambitions at all. But if you truly believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you will have new and higher ambitions for your life. What higher calling is there than this? To bring Christ to the world and to bring the world to Christ. Do you have this God-sized vision for your life? If you live for any other lesser or insignificant purpose, you will be left empty and dissatisfied. And so pray and ask God to maximize your life, your talents, your resources, your influences for His kingdom and glory. And this leads us to our next point. When we encounter the risen Christ, we undergo a change from weakness to power. If there was a very important message that I wanted the whole world to know, I'm not recruiting a bunch of unschooled fishermen to do the job. That sounds like a very, very bad idea, but not to God. He desires to use the weak to lead the strong. He is looking for fragile vessels of clay to carry his gospel. He is looking for unimpressive men and women who will not rely on their own strength, but who will rely on the sufficiency of his grace. Remember this. Though we are called to participate in God's mission, we are not the ones to accomplish it. The Spirit of God is already at work in the world. The Spirit of God is working in us and through us. Look with me to verse 22. It says, And with that he, Jesus, breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The only other time God breathes on a man is in Genesis, when God breathed life into Adam. And so Jesus breathes upon his disciples to symbolize new life and new creation order. Furthermore, Jesus' breathing on his disciples was a prophetic sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 records our Lord's final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit is essential for the church to carry out her task. We cannot rely on our own strength. We need the Spirit's empowerment 
empowerment to be witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth. I often hear Christians say, I'm not ready to serve. I'm not ready to share the gospel. I'm not ready to be discipled and make disciples. Maybe that's you. Well, sometimes they might have valid reasons why they are not ready. But usually, what is really going on in their heart is, God, I'm not ready to obey. I'm not ready to obey you. Because surely God has given you all the resources you need to obey. He's given you the Word, the Bible. He's given you the church. He's given you a campus ministry. And of course, He's given you the Holy Spirit. So what do you mean you're not ready? Does the Holy Spirit not convict you and lead you and prompt you and embolden you and empower you? The truth is, it's either you don't have the Spirit at all or you have been quenching the Spirit by your disobedience. If you're a Christian and someone you love, a friend, a dear family member who does not know Christ and they are on the path to hell, are you not going to share the gospel with them because you don't feel like you're ready? If their house is on fire, we would kick and scream and do everything we can to get their attention or else they will perish in the fire. But because so many Christians do not live with urgency, they do not evangelize with urgency, so many unbelievers do not sense real love and concern, and they remain unconvinced of their faith and of our message. Beware, dear brothers and sisters. The idolatry of comfort has already invaded our circles and it may have already invaded your heart. Evangelism and discipleship is not the job of just another Christian. Don't be discouraged because you don't have always the right words to say. Don't be discouraged by the lack of results. But just be willing. Just be available to step out in faith and obey. And God will honor that. If you feel inadequate, you can start by asking older brothers and sisters in Christ to mentor you and disciple you. You can sign up for the evangelism training coming up offered by KC next month. You can read a Christian book on theology. There's so many resources out there. And keep this in mind, successful evangelism is simply obeying God by sharing the gospel of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Now, let's move on to our final point. When we encounter the risen Christ, we undergo a change from false teaching to sound doctrine. Look with me to verse 23. Jesus instructs his disciples in this way. 
If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Is this verse teaching that Jesus gave the power to forgive sins to the apostles? Well, the Roman Catholic Church likes to believe so. They believe that God has given sacramental authority to forgive sins to the church and to their priests. But the only example of a person actually forgiving sins in the New Testament is Jesus Christ in response to people's faith. To which the teachers of the law reply, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the man, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus claims for himself the authority to forgive sins which in all the Bible is only ever attributed to God. There's a gentleman at my church who comes from a Roman Catholic background. And just the other day, he came up to me after Bible study and he asked me, Pastor, Pastor David, can I confess all of my sins to you? And can you forgive me of my sins? And so I took him aside and I said, okay, confess all of your sins to me now. And he's like, right now, right here? I'm like, yes, right now, right here. And he started listing all of his sins from his childhood, from his teenager days till now. And then when he was finished, I asked him two questions. I asked him, did you sincerely repent of your sins? And he said, yes. Then I asked him, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died for your sins and that he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven? And he said, yes. And then I said to him, I can't forgive you of your sins, but I can certainly confirm to you that your sins are forgiven based on the profession of your faith. You see, if verse 23 is read within context, the focus is on the evangelistic mission that Jesus' disciples are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do. Upon encountering the risen Christ, the disciples gained a full understanding of God's plan of salvation, and now they were empowered by the Spirit to tell others. So what is Jesus saying here, really? Well, he's simply saying to his disciples that they are to declare and to pronounce that a person's sins are forgiven if they respond in faith to the proclamation of the gospel. And vice versa. The disciples are to declare and pronounce that a person's sins are not forgiven if they do not respond in faith to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, the question you must ask yourself is this, do you have this gospel? Do you have this gospel that Jesus 
and his apostles actually taught? Do you believe that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone? Because our mission is not to proclaim any version of the gospel, but to proclaim the pure gospel, free from contamination. Every born-again Christian must hate false teaching and love sound doctrine. We long to grow in knowledge of the things of God revealed in His Word, and we will not settle for anything less. The Apostle Paul gives this charge to Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn to myths. In these last days, the masses of people will belittle and undermine sound doctrine. But their itching ears want to hear the gospel of legalism and self-righteousness, the gospel of antinomianism and license to sin, the gospel of wokeism and individual freedom, the gospel of prosperity and positive thinking, the gospel of Islam and world religions. And I ask the Christians of this generation, which gospel will you pass on to the generations who will come after you? What legacy will you leave behind? Because there is only one gospel that saves. And it is the duty of every saint of all ages to contend for the truth and for the gospel that was entrusted to us. The Jehovah's Witnesses have already set up their booths on every major street in our city. The Mormons have sent all of their young men for two years around the world on a mission trip. But where are all the godly young men and women who will herald the true gospel of Jesus Christ? And there are still three billion people around the world who have never heard the gospel once. Will you take personal responsibility for this great injustice? It is time for this next generation of Christians to rise and take up the torch of the gospel and go further than the church has ever gone before. And so, brothers and sisters, today, you have heard the word of God preached to you. If you have truly encountered the risen Christ, it will be evident by the radical changes in your life. And so let us no longer live in fear, but remember our permanent and heavenly joy in Christ. 
Let us no longer live in crisis without direction, but live with passion and singular purpose for Christ. Let us no longer be ashamed of our weakness, but rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth. And let us no longer be neutral about false teaching, but contend, contend for sound doctrine and for the gospel of Christ, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word and your gospel given to us. Lord, let our lives be consistent to our profession of faith. We claim to be Christians. We claim to be our disciples. Help us to prove that we are your disciples by our life. And help us to walk in step with your spirit in obedience to your word. Help us to be so consumed by your glory and your glory alone. Help us to have a passion to spread your gospel to the ends of the earth. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.